Get ready, it's time. Motherhood Talk Radio, starring Sandra Beck, is the most powerful voice in women's issues today. As the owner of Motherhood Incorporated, Sandra brings you inspiring, influential, and interesting resources to help you navigate everything from childcare to corporate formation. Each episode of Motherhood Talk Radio features guests who all have a story, experts in their field, and information you won't want to miss. We bring you everything from the latest crafting tips to how to be sexy in your 40s. From great parenting tips to moms facing some tough challenges, and most importantly, how to bounce back with style. Motherhood Talk Radio helps you make a difference in your world and the world around us. Being all you can be starts right here, right now. Let's do it. Here's your host, Sandra Beck. Hey, everybody, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm here with Leslie Eckford and Amanda Lambert. And we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart today, because as many of you know, I care for my 88-year-old dad and my kids who are 11 and just turning 15. Um, Soul-supporting as a single mom, and I got to tell you, being ripped between generations, going from 8 to 80 in the household, trying to feed one kid with uh, glucose or gluten sensitivity, other kid has blood sugar, my dad can't have salt, here's a banana, knock yourself out. Like that's (laughs) dinner in my household because it is just too much to deal with sometimes. And it's really important we've got these ladies on the show today because they have written a couple books. Um, Aging with Care, Your Guide to Hiring and Managing Caregivers. And then what's the first one, the one that came out in 2002, ladies? Beating the Senior Blues. Beating the Senior Blues. Wow. Boy, do we know that about our household. Um, Their books are available through Amazon, and their website, if you're following along at home today, is mindfulaging.com, like mindfulaging.com. And we're going to have the girls introduce each other to us. Um, Leslie Eckford, I'd love you to go first. My name is Leslie Eckford, and Sandra, I'm just so happy to be here with you today. Oh, it's so much fun. It is. We're going to have a ball. We're going to have a ball. How about you, Amanda? And I'm Amanda Lambert, and it's just a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Sandra. Yeah, I mean, how many of us are struggling with the same things every day? That's one of the things that I found when I looked out in the caregiver community, because I'm a caregiver. I'm also a veteran caregiver. My dad's a veteran. Um, We all struggle with the same things. I think the hardest thing that I have as a caregiver, and it reflects in my dad, is getting him to move. Uh, Well, that's one of our favorite topics. And honestly, I can say... From my parents' point of view, both of my parents were lifetime exercisers. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, you know, it's the big lottery with aging. What is it going to come up for you? We've known people who, you know, never smoked, never drank, and they're felled by a stroke. You just can't predict. And to some extent, that happened with my parents. Uh, My father was a marathon runner, and then he developed Parkinson's disease. Wow. And so, but even with that, I can say that the day before he died, and he was on hospice, one of his 
favorite last visits was from his physical therapist, who he had shared a lot of running stories with. And it was one of the most beautiful things I ever saw, was she came in and gave him a very light massage. So movement, up until your last dying breath, we all have it in us. Yes, I would echo that completely. Both of my parents are in their 90s, you know, declining. They were both lifetime exercisers. And I've had to really encourage them to take advantage of physical therapy, which I think is a good sort of entry point into safe movement as people start to decline or they develop certain diseases. So I think that's one good way to kind of get people going is if you can convince people to try physical therapy. Otherwise, there are tons of really low impact chair exercises, videos. You know, if people are in senior living, there are classes to go to, there's the senior center. So there are lots of options. It's just convincing people to do it. And we, That's the problem. we just shared uh, an article that we heard yesterday on the radio, which is good. Your listeners are listening to radio and learning things. You know that thing about taking 10,000 steps for health? Oh, I got my Fitbit right here. Yep, okay, yep. well, that was created by Japanese marketers about 20 years ago. Oh, no. It had nothing to do with science, so a researcher decided to check it out, and they, they did it with older women. And guess what? The actual health benefits are many fewer than 10,000. It was like, it's 4,200. Oh my it gosh, 4,200. Yes, it, it actually increased longevity, 4,200 wow. steps per day. Yeah, per day, which is, I mean, obviously less than half of 10,000. Yeah, <laughs> sure. We were buried. But that's, you know, I'm going to share something with you guys because I feel like I had for, for like 10 years, I feel like I had this, like what it must like to be elderly and, and, you know, kind of confined to a location uh, because I was in technology, you know, <laughs> you're chained to a computer, you're stuck in a chair, you can't get up and move, the bathroom's upstairs, things are running. And for almost a decade, I sat at a computer and didn't move anything more than a few fingers. Mm -hmm. And what I found when I, when I left my late thirties and early forties and I left technology after 10 years, I couldn't go up and down the stairs easily. I couldn't get up and down the chairs. I was walkily when I walked, everything was tight and stiff. And, you know, it reminded me of my dad, you know, who sits and watches like Hogan's Heroes reruns all the time. And when I started on my own fitness journey because of some health issues, I started walking, just the simple mm -hmm. prospect of walking and my hips eased up, my knees, my legs strengthened. You don't realize how much everything gets tight and saggy and, and no power when you sit all the time. And you were so smart to get moving, but there. think of all the people who don't have a daughter like you who are elder and are sitting and they, there is a psychological impact of just sitting there and your mind gets slushy too. 
Ladies, this is a great time for us to thank our sponsor today. Our sponsor is Care Of. You can go to takecareof.com and enter a promo code Powered Up to get 25% off your first Care Of order. And Care Of is a subscription service that delivers vitamin and supplements customized to your specific health needs. You take this short quiz and you answer questions about your diet, your lifestyle, your fitness, and your health goals. And Care Of puts together a personalized plan for you. And it's really great because the vitamins come in these little personal packs. They have your name on them. If you need energy, if you need, you know, whatever you need. Um, they put this plan together for you and you just get it right in the mail. Like it just shows up on your door. It's one less thing to do. And it makes sure that what you're putting into your body comes from the best sources backed by honest guidance and transparency. All of this is available on their website. They also have protein powders available and they can come in individual packets or in the tubs. And they're personalized for your fitness goals and your dietary preferences. Vegan and vegetarian supplement options are available. So go to takecareof.com, enter promo code POWEREDUP, and you will get 25% off your first Care Of order. We're finding new things out every day. And, you know, you were telling me uh, at break about this study that was done. There was a study that was done that looked at why people seem to decline after they physically decline after they go to assisted living. They found that one of the reasons is because when people go to assisted living, they're no longer taking care of the yard. They're not doing their housekeeping. They're not doing their cooking. So they're not, they're not engaging in those everyday movements that we just take for granted. I mean, I'm sure there were other factors as well, but my parents are in independent senior living, but we have them in an apartment that is far away from the elevator as you can get. Yep. Oh, so for I, every oh, meal, they have to walk. <laughs> See, and I do all these little tricks. I'm so glad my dad would never listen to my shows. <laughs> I take the remote control and, you know, where oh. his lazy boy is over by the TV is pretty far from where the refrigerator is. So I like to kind of sneak by his lazy boy. I pick up the remote as I go and I put it in front of the fridge. Then he'll text me because he's really good at technology. <laughs> he'll text me, Sam, where's the remote control? And I'm like, I think you left it by the fridge. He'll get up out of his chair. He'll walk down. But, you know, when you were talking about that thing about gardening and, and um, you know, the things that we do before we go into care, um, certain care facilities, it made me think about the air shows with my dad. My dad's um, retired military. He's retired Navy. Um, when the air shows are in town, he will walk. He will walk from that parking lot to the P-38 static display. He's out to the flight line. Hey, there's the Blue Angels. But when we don't have those interests, mm -hmm. it's like everything just kind of folds in on itself. He becomes like the grandpa black hole. Yeah. And nothing changed in that other than what he wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. So it just shows so how our mind can engineer things. And, mm -hmm. you know, like even now for you guys, when you have a bad day, like, you know, how sometimes you have the blues and you, you're like, you don't want to get off the couch and there's nothing to watch on TV and you just kind of sit there. You can feel everything slow down. Mm -hmm. And like, you might get a text on your phone and be like, Oh, what's that? Versus I mean, it's, it's, to, it's to everyone, don't you think? Not just aging. I think it just becomes more pronounced as we age. Yeah. And I, it, that sort of reminds me of, we used to, 
do uh, different groups. And I remember telling groups of seniors that studies had shown that when you're reading and sitting on a couch, you're burning more calories than if you are sitting on a couch watching television. Something about your metabolism slows that much further down. Well, and, probably because you're like a zombie. I mean, if you have, yeah. I see my kids in front of the TV, they're like, yeah, they, they barely blink. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like passive versus active. Yeah. But Sandra, I think you got to a really good point, which is the heart of what you were talking about is motivation. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what can motivate older people to move? And I think that's a really critical question. I mean, on Memorial Day, they had this amazing um, uh, World War II memorabilia exhibit where my parents live. And, you know, my dad made a beeline down there because he's a World War II vet. But normally he doesn't go to a single activity. Right. You know, I can't get him to do anything. My mom is different, but it's hard to get him to do anything. But he was at that exhibit. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's kind of like any of us, you know, if, if we have a wedding to go to, we hit the gym more, (laughs) we eat a lot less, um, you know, it's, it's about connecting to our behaviors, to that motivation, to that desired outcome. And I think that's one of the hardest thing. Cause my dad's favorite thing to say is I don't need any new underpants. I'll be dead next oh. year. Oh, oh, I don't need any new socks. I'll be dead soon. Uh, you, you've heard it. Oh yeah. I, I heard it right out of my dad's on. mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what do you say to that? Where I say, I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, you're not going to be dead in the next five minutes. Let's go to Sam's Club and get you some underpants. Like, right. There, there's something to be said for living in the moment and an existential viewpoint. But my 97-year-old mother-in-law, will, when my husband calls and says, hey, mom, how are you doing? She'll say, well, I'm still here. You know, it does, it's a change. We know that it's a change. And it, it is sort of a joke, but it also means something. And it's not that we think, oh, you need to go to psychoanalysis for right. 10 years. But it, it, it does beg a question and, and it does, you know, it, it is an opportunity in a way for to engage in a discussion, like you said, you know. And, and it may only be like, well, but hey, we're going to Walmart anyway to get you a new pair, you know. Right. Well, and it's, you know, there's things like, you know, when they say that, like my grandpa, and this is a terrible story, I'm going to tell it anyway. um, He was dying from the time I was born. He had a heart attack when he was 1930, and he was born in like 1907. He was 39 when he had his heart attack. I think he was probably 55 when he had me, you know, as a granddaughter. And I would sit with my brothers and sisters at the Thanksgiving or the Easter table, whatever it is. And my grandfather would get up every year and talk about how grateful he is to live another year. And then he'd get all, you know, all emotional because it might be his last. And when I was really little, like five or six, I was scared. I thought, oh my gosh, this is so scary. By the time I was 25, like we would just be like giggling and giggling. And then when my grandfather did pass away, he was 94. I called my older sister and she's like, really? Like, <laughs> and not to be unkind to him, but I think that as a culture, we don't talk about death and aging 
I see it in this generation. You know, when I was growing up, my mom would say, oh, yeah, well, at the, I go to the Irish wakes, they'd pick up the body and dance with it. And, you know, we had been to my other grandma's funeral. Like, my Uncle Eric died. My brother tried to prove to us that they sewed his lip shut after death. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know. We just, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> but the point was that death was a part of life. And maybe because we were from a farming community, you knew that animals died, you slaughtered to eat them. You know, we had families who died at various ages. But now we live in an environment where aging is, everything's anti-aging, anti-aging cream, right. anti-aging this. So it's almost like we're, we're denying what's happening. What's coming. Yeah. And what's coming. So we're not, you know, I bring up these things, you know, cause they're, they're fun and they're funny, but they illustrate a bigger, a bigger issue is we don't talk about death. We don't talk about aging. We talk about anti. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Preventative. Preventative. Well, we're all yeah. going to get there someday. Right. And, so. it, and it, it speaks to our need for controlling everything. Mm-hmm. We want to have the final say and the, group of us, Amanda and I included, of baby boomers aging, we don't take kindly to someone trying to tell us how our aging is going to be. But you bring up a really good point because there are just going to be some unfortunate realities for people. Um, Aging is associated with decline for many people. Yes, we're seeing more and more superstar agers but just think of the pressure, the competition that people are going to feel to be even more healthy or to feel less of themselves if they don't live up to that. Well, and we have the technology now to keep people alive. You know, when they're in a very declined mm-hmm. state, we can keep them alive. Right. If that's what they want. Yeah. And we do it. Oh, sure. I yeah. mean, with battlefield injury rates. I mean, we look at our, you know, our military, many of our young men and women would have died in prior wars and we're able to keep them alive. And then we're somehow wondering about not all of the suicide rates, but some of the suicide rates because of, you it's know, huge. it's, it's difficult. I mean, there's, these are big dilemmas and that's why it's so great to have you guys on my show and talking about some of this stuff, because maybe somebody listening will go home and think, you know, what I see on TV or, you know, sometimes these medical advances, like, what do I really want? Mm-hmm. You know, what is it? What is important to me? Cause I, you know, I love Grace and Frankie, you know, I watched that mm-hmm. on Netflix and, you know, Jane Fonda, I mean, she rocks it. I don't care. She you know, you want to go back to Hanoi Jane and pick on her, go ahead. <laughs> My dad calls her Hanoi Jane. Oh, you're watching that Hanoi Jane thing again. <laughs> But you look at her and then she's beautiful, but she's like a Beverly Hills science project. You know, there's not a nip tuck. I mean, I know she works hard and she probably works out like that, but she probably also has half a million dollars, you know, to put towards her body adjustments. Right. And And, and, and I think she is pretty open about that. But I think you bring up a really good point that Amanda and I had been talking about earlier, which is you know, people do have some choices to make, but what we see in families between the adult children and uh, their elders is that people don't necessarily talk in advance until there's a big crisis. Right. Well, what would you want us to do, Dad? Would you want us to um, have them do a surgery when you have already started to show signs of dementia? And so what we're really encouraging people to do 
is to have these talks now. When, you know, after the big holiday meal and everybody's sitting around and saying, you know, could we talk for a minute and just bring up one of these issues? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is something that as part of my business and I do a lot of consultations, it's the first thing I recommend. Sit down and talk about what it is that you want. What are your end of life wishes? And, you know, each state is different in terms of mm-hmm. advanced directives, but right. typically it's, it's not that complicated. It's just a matter of people being willing to sit down and discuss their, their wishes. Well, and I think, that, I think most people are open to that and, and, and will do it. Um, but it's just something like Leslie said, if you wait until there's a crisis or if you wait until somebody's not able to respond, yeah. then what? Right. Yeah, but you know what you're talking about and seeing people in denial. My parents, when they were in their 70s, they <laughs> they had their first grandchild, thanks to me and my husband. And they, my mother was like, "Ooh, is is he gonna call me grandma?" And I'm <laughs> like, "Mom, you're you're in your 70s. It's kind of a good thing." But they were really age deniers. They didn't want to talk mm. about that. And I never had a conversation with them in advance about that, other than that I knew they didn't want machines mm-hmm. to save their life. That, that was about the extent of it. But I think it's like the question begs to, you know, and I have a big family of girls who yak a lot, and my dad's so excited one of them gets paid to talk. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the questions that comes up is who brings it up? You know, like in my family, it's easy. I'm the big mouth. I'm the one that's like, well, dad, you know, what do you want? You want to be cremated? You want to be put in a box? You want to want me to dump you in Canandaigua Lake? Like what's, and I, but I will say the first time I brought it up, like when my mom was diagnosed stage four breast cancer, this was about mm, maybe nine, 10 years ago. I had to ask her some things and I will say that it wasn't pleasant. Even for me, somebody who's a trained professional interviewer, I went to Northwestern, I went to journalism school, I can get the best stories out of anybody, but it was my mom, you know, and you don't want to hurt her feelings. You don't want to make her uncomfortable, but you know, and when I, when I first brought up the conversation to her, you know, she she was, she had just, you know, you're stuck having chemo. So you're kind of stuck for a couple hours in a place. Good place to have these conversations because right? <laughs> nobody can go anywhere. It's like being in a car, right. um, but it gets easier. I guess that's if one thing I wanted people to know when you bring this up. And that's why I brought up the funny stories about, you know, people talking about death in our family because it wasn't a taboo topic. Mm-hmm. I think it was a little easier, but it might go bad the first time you bring it up. Like, don't have a high expectation. Don't load too much onto the other person or on yourself. Just throw it out there. See if it lands and then throw it out again because eventually it'll land. But it's okay to feel weird and creepy and frightened mm-hmm. when you have these conversations because I was terrified. I you know I remember my mom laying on her bed in the back of our, our house on Canandaigua Lake and you know, she was just so sick. And I'm like, you know, like, mom, well, what do you want with some of these things? What can I do? And it was that first acknowledgement of that. She will not be here next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Well, and that's, yeah, because you're talking about death. Yeah. You know? And I think one thing that's really helped is I think almost, I think almost all healthcare settings now require it. I mean, if you end up in the hospital, 
they want to see that advanced directive. So it can come up in that setting as well, or home health. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Even home health agencies now, they want to see an advanced directive. They want to see end of life wishes. So, But I think you get to another really tricky situation for us as adult children is that our parents are the adult in the room. And yet part of what we're trying to say when we're directing these conversations with them is we are taking over that position. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this kind of ties in with the sandwich generation. I have a, a couple of teenagers, and they are working so hard, very appropriately, to push me away. And and my son recently told me very point blank, "Stop <laughs> telling me what to do. I am now the expert on how to live my life." Yeah, but I'm still your mother. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) And it was so hard. And yet it was also really wonderful to hear him say that. But I remember with my father, my father was a Marine Mm -hmm. and he was the boss in the room, Yep, which meant he was the top adult in the room. And to have to say some difficult things Mm -hmm. to him was some of the hardest conversation I ever had with anyone. I bet. Yeah, I think that's so true. And there's there comes that point in your relationship with your parents. Both my parents are in their 90s. I'm always offering to help. I'm a geriatric care manager. That's what I do. <laughs> and they tell me, uh, we are independent. We don't want your help. But then I get the phone call. We need your help. (laughs) I'm like, oh, okay. I haven't quite figured out when it is you need my help and when you don't. But you know, you have to you have to go with it. You just have to kind of be flexible, go with the flow, realize that they are in a position they've never been in before. Right. Assess in positions we've never been in before. See, that's that to me, I think, is the one of the best things that that you guys have said because as it transitions, it's like a pendulum swing, you know, and the TVs and movies, it's like, oh, I'm the daughter. My mom is sick. Now my mom's sick. I'm the adult and she's fine with that. And it seems to just all work out in like 30 minutes. It's not like that in real life. There's that pendulum swing of, because I look at my dad sometimes and he's fiercely independent over here and then it'll swing over, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'll give a perfect example. When he was living with me, he's telling me he's got, he needs a hip transplant or a hip replacement. So I call my friend who's a orthopedic surgeon. She's like, yeah, I have him stand this way. I have him do this in the kitchen. No, no, he's fine because he sits too much. So we go for six months and if I give him an aspirin, then he's a little baby. And then if I don't give him the aspirin, he's in pain and he's like, oh, it's hell to get old, you know, the whole thing. (laughs) So it goes back and forth in this pendulum swing. Then he goes home to to Buffalo with my family. My brother, my older brother, drives him to all the different, 15 different x-rays, two different doctors. Well, you got to lose 20 pounds and walk more. Uh, Right. And so, but this was a year process, but this is normal. Like this is what happens. You know, you don't, you're not dealing with someone who is fully independent but fully dependent. You know, you're, you're somewhere in there. And we have, like on days where we do a lot, his mental acuity is much better. Mm-hmm. If he has sit and watched Hogan's Heroes and Matlock all day, he can't remember what he ate for lunch. Right. And I think that pendulum swing back and forth, 
is something that's not really spoken about. Right. One of our favorite things is seeing the advertisements for senior living. And you see this beautiful older woman and she's gazing lovingly at the caregiver and they're just such good friends. But really, if we saw the real picture, she's telling the caregiver to get the hell out of the room and leave me alone. And, you know, it's one of the things that I used to talk in groups with seniors about is is there a way for you to find a, a middle ground yeah. where you can maintain your adult self and accept help? Mm-hmm. Because it would be easier for everybody. The energy that people put into resisting is... Ooh. Well, and I think there's something that happens to people's brains, and it may happen to our brains. <laughs> so <laughs> soon. It could happen to our brains too. There's this odd sort of denial that people are in decline. Like a perfect example would be my dad, who's 95. I don't know how he gets up and walks every day, but he does. He looks like he's about to fall over. He uses a walking stick and he comes back to his apartment and he says to me, you know, there's so many people here who just can't get around very well. (laughs) And I look at him and go, wow, I yeah, you're one of those people, but he oh. just doesn't see it. He well, I try to get it. my dad to go to the senior center down the street. It's literally a mile away. And you know what he tells me? He They're goes, well, the Wi-Fi is pretty good, but everybody there is old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, you're old. Like, but, but, you know, I think, you know, he did tell me one time, he looks at his driver's license every now and then, and he can't believe it. You know, he sees his date of birth. And it's there, you know, or his military ID card, you know, he sees it there, but he can't believe it. Like he cannot believe he is over 85 years old. He just can't, there's no, I don't know. Yeah. And you know, when Leslie was talking about how to have these conversations, we, you know, we talk a lot about this in our book, but I think if, if you come at any of these difficult conversations, whether they're about end of life or whether they're about a decline that you see happening I mean, it really has to be done with respect. Mm-hmm. It has to be done with respect and, and not with control and not with pressure. That can be really hard, especially if this is the 15th time you've had the conversation oh, yeah. and you're not getting anywhere. But still, I think that's how you're going to have the best success because people want to have control. They want to be empowered to make their own decisions. And all you can do is try to help that process along. But at the end of the day, People make their own decisions. Right. And we see that all the time. You know, many people think, oh, well, if mom or dad are are doing something very unsafe, then we're just going to pull out the big guns and get some legal backup. Mm -hmm. Well, good luck with that because that can be a very long, complicated, and destructive to the family process. We've seen that lots of times. Yes. And, and even you can put mom or dad in the uh, nursing home or assisted living, and that does not a guarantee that they're and going to be safer. Yeah, right. doesn't solve the problem. This is one of the things that I, you know, I'm not going to name my family members, but, you know, I come from a big family. And when my mom was dying, some of my family members had good relationships with my mom. 
they would call her regularly. So they weren't surprised at declines. They would visit regularly or at least, you know, get on the iPhone and Skype. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of these problems really exist when I look at my own family and, and the whole grieving process, the whole long-term decline, you know, you have a lot of time to sit and look at everything. When you don't have a relationship with your aging parent, there's no trust. You know, there's a reason why, you know, my dad lives with me eight months, nine months out of the year. When he has a question, he's going to run it by me first. Not, I have sisters who are nurses. You're going to ask me because I have the relationship with you. And don't you think that some of these big problems, if you're not, it's, if you don't develop a relationship with your parent at any point in their lifetime, don't expect them to be compliant with you in aging. Mm-hmm. I Well, and I think also parent-child relationships can be so complicated. We can all go back to our own adolescence and what it was like for us to separate from those same parents. And, and we have, I mean, I think what you're saying is very true. But I also think the nature of relationships in general, sometimes, I've, I've seen some beautiful rapprochement, uh, return to connection at the end of life. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm an optimist. And, and I've seen the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I work because I deal with so much family conflict. Yeah. And, you know, nine times out of 10, the one sibling that is causing the conflict is the one that never sees mom or dads. That's right. Absolutely. Hands down, hands down. You know, I saw it in my own, you know, relationships and, um, it's just really tough. They're always the sticky wicket. They're always the one that are going to challenge everything. And they're also the one usually that's in the most denial. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, and it can get messy and it can get really difficult. And I've had families that have had to go to mediation you know, with, with a mediator, you know, to work things out because everybody's fighting and, you know, you hope it doesn't get to that. And as Leslie says, there are lots of families, you know, where this isn't an issue, but again, if you can just get back to planning and talking about these things before the decline happens and before the, the drama happens, mm-hmm. exactly. you know what I mean? Cause that's the thing, like, you know, you, when you look at family dynamics. You know, when you've got a bunch of girls and a bunch of boys in a family, somebody's going to (laughs) disagree on a good day. You know, two of my sister, my older sister and I will fight on a good day, like about anything. It could, it wouldn't even matter. The wind could blow and I'd say it's blowing. No, it's not, you know, but these things get amplified was what you're talking about. The dynamics that exist in the family unit that have carried over from childhood into adulthood and kind of cemented in certain places. When you add on the fuel of a parent that's dying or needs significant medical decisions made, do you find, because I saw it was more childhood family dynamics playing out sometimes Mm -hmm. between siblings, then hello, the point is, you know, mom or dad over here. Right. That's that fuel, that rocket fuel that just, makes everything so much harder. Yeah. And, and drama typically arises from crisis. So if you've already had these discussions, I mean, I work with families where I'm just shocked to find out that the, the adult children don't even know what insurance their parents have. They don't know anything about their finances. They don't know if they have long-term care insurance. 
They don't know, they don't know anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, they really, I mean, and it's important to sit down and have those discussions because at some point somebody is going to have to step in and make decisions. Right. If you can't access any of that information, how can you make wise decisions? You can't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that gets to another part of family dynamics and um, privacy mm -hmm. that, oh, well, you, you don't need to know what, you know, your father and I have in the bank. <laughs> right. Well, it, that is a huge issue for adult children. And, and it, it, you know, you feel like you're going over a boundary to ask that it's like asking what your sex life is like, mom. Mm -hmm. No, it's, I need to know where you have money, what you owe, what, mm -hmm. uh, what is the picture like? And that is just something that people, again, just yeah, talk and, early. You know, I feel like I'm really fortunate because my dad came to me and said, you know, I'm starting to lose it. Mm -hmm. I feel like I can't manage my finances. I'm afraid that I'm going to have to turn it over to you. And I said, well, dad, we, you can do that, but we have to put some things in place. I can't just do that. Right. Right. So we put everything in a trust. You know, we hired an attorney. We put everything in a trust with my sister and I as co-trustees and we're co-trustees at the moment. So in other words, we could take over tomorrow. Right. But we won't unless one or both of my parents ask us to. So I was really fortunate that he could see that he was starting to lose his grip and asked me to come up with a solution. And I was able to do that. But I think that's pretty rare. I think it's, I, I went it's through the opposite. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, we talk about relationships with money. You know, that's really what we're talking about. And, you know, it's not really a family issue. It's a personal relationship with money. And some cultures and families, money is, it's rude to speak of money. Exactly. You know, you come from a real estate family. The first thing they'll ask you is, oh, what'd you pay for your house? <laughs> and it's, <laughs> you know, it runs that big gamut. But then there's also fear. You know, I remember reading an article and I think it was in Forbes. I'm not sure, but they said, like 93% of seniors are more afraid of running out of money in their retirement than dying. I mean, what does that say? And they have good reason to have those fears. They certainly do. The cost of aging is enormous. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so let's talk about caregivers, because I like the, this, this guide to managing, hiring and managing caregivers, because I can only imagine, you know, somebody's taking care of mom and oh, I could just see somebody going in my childhood home with my both my parents and just siblings flying all over the map going, they're going to steal the silverware, they're going to, you know, leave my mom on the couch for hours, like, you know, because you just hear, all we hear in the media is these horror stories. And when I took my dad into my house um, as a caregiver, I was scared because I had heard how awful it could be. Now, it turned out to be great. You know, I have my days, don't get me wrong. If you caught me on one of those days, you might get a different story, but by and large, it's, you know, it's worked out pretty well, but what's the reality of hiring a caregiver? Like, what does that look like? Well, Leslie, why don't you take that question? Because <laughs> you have a story to tell. I, unfortunately, I, I had, it looked like the perfect situation. Um, I was, my father had had a surgery he had a home health nurse who we all just loved. And my parents were starting to show signs that they needed help around the clock. And <clears throat> this nurse recommended a caregiver to me. And, um, and then 
a doctor who knew the caregiver also said, oh, that caregiver is really wonderful. And with those references, I, it didn't even occur to me to run a background check. It didn't occur to me to get any other references. And that was a huge mistake. Um, I won't go into a lot of detail. You can read the book to read more about that. But uh, needless to say, uh, my parents lost a lot of money and belongings, jewelry, mm -hmm. and household items. And we were very lucky uh, that we were able to catch this person and we went to the police. And I have to admire my parents who are both very, very private people. But when they heard that we could potentially press charges, they said, absolutely, this person has done something that is a crime. And violated trust. Absolutely. And this, and I will tell you, this was a good caregiver. Um, air quotes around that. Right. Um, well, but how would you know? <laughs> like, that's why it's so important that we, we have these shows, we have these conversations, you write these books, because it can happen to anybody. And, and Amanda and I want to emphasize, we love caregivers. Sure. Worked with so many great caregivers. And since then, my parents have had fantastic, very trustworthy, loyal people who would never, ever uh, take advantage of them. Well, it's that one person that does that affects so many people and then it's on the news and, you know, yeah. people talk about it and, you know, so you're right. It's like a 90, you know, maybe 90, 10 proposition for every 90, maybe you have 10 that are, you know, on the bubble and then one is awful, but we only hear about the awful ones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think I would add to that, you know, we both live this and deal with it every day. People think that their problems will be solved, you know, when they go through an agency and get caregivers in the home and they get somebody they really love. Well, if you get somebody you really love, the chances are they're probably going to move on. Even though you have hired caregivers in the home, it, you still have to manage it. Mm -hmm. um, Leslie's a long distance care manager. Yeah. So basically. I live in one state and my parents are in another state. I make as many trips as I can. Um, and you may have gathered I'm a, <clears throat> a pretty controlling person myself. <laughs> so um, I have to know what's going on at all times. And since that experience, I have learned about background checks and references and uh, remote cameras. Mm -hmm. I have remote cameras in my mother's home. I have outdoor cameras. I have security lights. Um, I have all kinds of ways of checking. And, and we go through that pretty thoroughly in our book, but we would just really encourage people, take it one step at a time, learn how to set it up, mm -hmm. and you'll probably have a really good experience. Mm -hmm. Well, it gives you peace of mind. Mm -hmm. You know, because some of it is for them, for their protection. But let's be honest, some of it is for you, for your peace of mind. You know, when you're responsible for um, a parent and you're responsible for their health and their finances and their pills and their nutrition and their exercise, it's a lot of work. And yeah. so anything you can do, you know, one of the things I'm really blessed by is you know, my dad's a yacker and he has funny stories to tell. So a lot of my friends 
enjoy him. So I have one friend, my friend's husband, John, he'll take my dad over to Edwards Air Force Base, you know, when there's something cool going on. Or my friend Tracy will come and just sit with them for an hour. But I, when people ask me, how can we help you? I had to learn how to say, it would be great if you would. Yes. Mm -hmm. That one was, I think, the hardest for me because I'm kind of a can-do girl. And, oh, yeah, I can do it. I can take three dogs. Sure, I can take four dogs. I can have two kids. You know, and boom, 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 boom. So to say, to be specific as a caregiver for what will help you. Yes. Doesn't mean you're deficient. And if you don't do it, like one of my friends, Carrie, she came over one day and she's like, I'm just going to help you with the laundry. She didn't even ask. She's like, I know between your boys and your dad and you're teaching gym and going to work, everything, your laundry's got to be piled up. So we made some tea, we folded for a couple hours, we laughed and we got it done. And it was the greatest gift. And what she said to me was, thank you for finally letting me help you. Because mm-hmm. she had been asking for, I don't know how long, you know, because I'm just in my own little go, go, go world. And I didn't realize how important it was for her to help me. And I said, I asked her why it was important. And she says, you know, Stan, my mom died when I was 23. My dad died when I was 29. Mm. She goes to come in and help. She goes, I get to feel like a family. I get to feel like I'm doing this for my dad just for a minute. I don't need to take over. I don't need to do any of this, but it gives me some peace of mind, some pleasure, some enjoyment. I think about my dad when I'm here and your dad's here. I never looked at it that way. I just looked at it from my own kind of insecure, selfish point of view of going, oh, that's because you think I can't do it. Right. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Right. I think this is so important, Sandra. And, you know, my parents have had a couple of health crises. I live here near them and so does my sister. But the best, the best thing that happened, my mom fell, broke a rib, you know, she's had some heart problems. We are very specific with one another. I will say to her, Kate, I really need you to do this. Pick up my mom's medications at the pharmacy. Being specific is so helpful. That way it's not just this broad, well, can I help you? It's like, what can I do? So we're, we're very good at communicating and she will tell me exactly what she needs me to do. Can you pick up dinner for mom and dad? That's so helpful because then you feel like you're actually achieving something. And you're helping, but you don't feel like you're, you're stepping on sort of the primary caregiver's toes sure. you know, by doing that. Well, and um, everybody's clear. Yeah, everybody's so, clear. And I think the biggest, problems that family care, the biggest problem that family caregivers have is asking for help. Yep. They yeah. think and they want to do it themselves. And they think that they are the best ones to do it. And they probably are. Mm-hmm. Okay. They know the situation best. And they're the best ones to do it. But the stress is enormous. Well, and not all the time. Like as somebody who's been doing caregiving for eight years for my dad, I might be the best one if I am rested, if I am fed, if I am in optimal shape, but I'm not every moment of the day. And the, the, the biggest thing I learned from being a caregiver is I am not an inexhaustible resource because for the longest time I thought I was, and I'll be honest with you guys, you'll laugh at me. The dumbest thing started to happen because I was wiped out taking care of everybody. My hair was falling out. 
Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. I'm 47 years old and you know, you can see my hair on the camera right here. I got a lot of it and I'm brushing it and wads are coming out and I'm noticing over here, like, where is my hair going? And I thought, well, maybe I'm sick. Maybe I'm whatever. And my doctor's like, no, he's like, you just have to take it easy. And when you start to relax, when you ask for a little help, when you put some things in place, your hair will grow back. And as a vain, vain woman, you know, you don't get my attention any other way. <laughs> you got my hair fall out, you got my attention. Um, but we don't want it to come to that no. because there are a lot of sandwich moms like me that are doing elder care and child care while working full time, while trying to take care of everything else under the sun. And usually that caregiver is not even on the to-do list. I wasn't. Right, right. It's, it's like on the airplane when the air uh, bag comes down, the oxygen mask comes down, you've got to give yourself the oxygen first. You, it's so easy to ignore yourself. It sounds so strange, but many of us caregiving types, we're sort of, it's part of our personality. We're sort of born that way. And, and other people pick up on that too. Oh, well, she'll take care of it. She'll take care of it. Yeah. Sam will do it. That's okay. She'll take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you start with baby steps. It's like, you know, when you're talking to your parents about death or your family members, you know, you take baby steps. I think for me, it was taking baby steps for self-care and baby steps for asking for help. You know, I would ask a little bit and then it would be okay. Then I'd ask a little bit more and it would be okay. And, um, but the essence of all of what we're talking about today, and that's why I'm so glad that you wrote the books that you did was it's communication. And I know that sounds like totally like, duh, but it's really hard to have some of these conversations. It's really hard for some of us to ask for help. Exactly. And we all have a tendency, everyone in the stories that we're talking about, the, the senior person, the adult child, the grandchildren, and extended family can make so many mistaken assumptions. about what the situation really is until you put the words out there, verbalize your questions and thoughts. What is this going on? Yeah. I mean, people who are outside of the caregiving situation, how do they know what's involved in a day-to-day basis? And when you ask them, you know, or, or say to them, you know, could you help me? Could you pick up the medications or could you help me with the laundry? They probably think, that's such a small thing, right. but it's on top of 200 things that you yes, have to do during the day. 200 small things that each take five minutes, but at the end of the day, we all get the same 24 hours. Or let's, we've got a few more minutes. I want to talk about, because I really want everybody to buy your books. I want <laughs> them to read your books. I want them to go to your website. Hold on. It's uh, mindfulaging.com. Watch these videos because you will get the languaging you need to have these conversations. When I listen to you, when I look at your books and I think I can do this, I can, cause you know, we can't just whip this out of our head. It's not easy, but reading your book, watching your videos, going to your website, you start getting to be comfortable with what I call the language of aging mm-hmm. because there are certain words, there are certain jokes, there are certain things, the more comfortable we are um, with those. Um, but The last thing I'd like to tackle, because this is something that frustrates the you-know-what out of me, the helpful advice. 
because I'm in the trenches every day with, you know, my Uzi and I'm mowing down, you know, whatever I need to mow down. And when someone calls me, I hope my sister's not listening, from (laughs) 3,000 miles away with helpful advice for dad or helpful advice for, you know, San, he really needs to be walking every day. And then I just sit there going, and my response now is, he will when you get out on a plane and you walk him. (laughs) (laughs) Because people mean well. I think, and this this goes on to the language and culture of aging. When my mom was dying, people didn't know what to say. And my, one of my very good friends, Janet Demeter, who um, runs Childhood Cancer Talk Radio, it's a joint venture for us. Her son, Jack, who was my son's friend, was dying of brain cancer at the same time. So we have these two ladies who have a dying mom and a dying kid. People said the stupidest things to us all the time. They didn't know what to say. So they would try to offer something. And I'd like to talk about the well-meaning people that say really stupid things to you. When you're trying to handle this, I mean, you can't tell me I'm the only one that's ever had somebody say stupid things to me while I'm trying to do this. No, I think it happens a lot. And since Leslie's a therapist, I'll let her take, take that question. I think that one of the things that amazes me is that people, uh, and honestly, this is mostly with my mother's peer group. Uh, my mother has dementia. And we believe in taking her out to have social events. And um, I've had friends of hers come up to me, and I know it's very painful for them to not be recognized, but my mother is still has her social skills and she would n- never be rude to anyone. Um, but people say, oh, well, you, you should probably do something about that. <laughs> really? <laughs> I never thought of that. I'm thinking, oh, did you hear about a cure for dementia that I hadn't heard of? I've got to get on that. So, you know, I I think sometimes there's some, we're going to give some people some slack and say that they're innocent. Um, And then isn't that interesting? That sort of then falls on you to be the one who needs to educate the other person. And, and that doesn't seem fair with all the other things that you have going on. But I think one of the things that one probably doesn't want to go for is to let your anger right. come out because it's not going to make you feel better later. No. I will just make one other suggestion, and this may seem obvious and it may not work. <laughs> but one thing that I recommend to families is that they keep other family members very closely apprised of what they're doing, like via email. So yeah. it's, it's in writing. You know, we went to the doctor. This is what happened. This is what the doctor said. This is the prognosis. These are the medications. Keep everybody in the loop so that they, even though they're not there, they feel like they have a context in which to, to experience what you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one recommendation that I would have because otherwise people are just in the dark and you really can't blame them if they don't know right what you're doing day in and day out. So I. I mean, even if you had to do a daily email, that's what I would do. I think that's a great idea. And I think also in those um, spontaneous interactions that you, you run into a friend who says, oh, I had no idea your dad was in such bad shape. I've heard that <laughs> before. <a> <laughs> Thanks. Um, 
is uh, I just state the case. Well, he has Parkinson's. Oh, really? And then maybe they're going to go home and get online and look up Mm -hmm. Parkinson's because maybe they've never met anyone with Parkinson's or with uh, a bad hip. Or, you know, they just may not know. Well, they just don't know. And they do say things because it is stressful for them, you know, when they, they're shocked, they're stressed. Mm-hmm. But I think, too, the most important thing is that we lay it out on the table. Like, people don't mean to be hurtful. They don't mm-hmm. mean to be rude. You know, I think of right. Janet when Jack, Jack had just died and he was four. And this lady came and hugged Janet and she was crying and she said, I'm so glad it wasn't my son. Oh! <gasps> And we all just stood there like we just, that's the winner of the stupid things to say. Um, Oh my God. And it flew out of her mouth like a bird. Cause I talked to her like, you know, months later, I'm like, why did you say that? Like, what were you thinking? She goes, I wasn't thinking it just came out. So the point is not to like make fun of people or, you know, point fingers, but to say this happens when you're caring for somebody who's terminally ill, when you're caring for somebody who has a physical manifestation of their illness because you know when they look fine nobody says anything if you're doing something out of the ordinary that's when the comments happen and you know with a long distance family member you cannot underestimate the power of guilt mm-hmm. and the fact that they may feel really guilty about the that they're not there that they're not more helpful and it's a way that people have of trying to exert some kind of control or influence or to say i care or to feel better or to mm-hmm. feel better. Right. So I agree with Leslie. I think you have to cut people some slack and try to understand where they're coming from. And as part of that process, include them, you know, and include them when you can in decision making. And that can be difficult and it can be more complicated, but, you know, give a call and say, Hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing with dad. What do you think? What is your opinion? Yeah. That is, if you're not like opening up Pandora's box. Right, but, right, you know, right. There's a right. You've line. got to pick and choose your battles, but... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But having these conversations of kind of what is like what we experience, you know, when I went through it with my mom and with Jack and now with my dad, I get it. But the first round, you know, like the first parent that's sick or the first thing, everything is new and you're so raw and tender that some of these things that might be totally innocent and innocuous today, you said it to me on that day and it really hurt. Because that's the one thing I think with caregivers that people don't recognize. And I only, right now, I only care that the caregiver knows that we know. You know, the person listening today who's the caregiver that says, you know, when somebody says something and it hurts, yeah, (laughs) it hurts. And, you know, people do say things, they don't mean to hurt you, but it does. They don't mean to upset you, but it does. This is like, it's like, you know, when your, your parent gets sick, they give you a brochure about whatever disease they have. And this is what to expect. And this is what the thing. So today we're talking about, you know, aging and care. So when your parent ages, these are the, some of the things that are going to happen. So don't be shocked by it. You're still not going to like it. You're, it's still going to hurt. But now when people say those dumb things to me about my dad, I just go, oh, that poor person doesn't know what they're saying. They really don't. They didn't mean it that way. Like I'm much more, I don't know what the word is. It doesn't hurt me as much, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Right. Yeah. Because we don't know. So, okay, you guys, we're at the end of our show. Um, I would like you guys to uh, talk about where we can get your books and where we can find out more about you. 
Well, our books are available online only, and the primary source is Amazon.com. It's available in paperback and hardcover and Kindle. Yes, and you can find out about us um, on our website, and we're on Instagram, Twitter. Um, everything is under the title Mindful Aging. And what can we find on your website if we go there? You know, we have articles, we post our videos, um, sometimes we have uh, guest uh, writers. So we have, a, I think, a pretty good variety of information. We're so interested in what we can do for healthy aging. At the same time, we talk very openly about uh, unique and creative ways that people are dealing with changes in aging. And I think Leslie and I both have a real interest in what can we all do now? Mm-hmm. What can we do? We're all aging. Some right. of us a little faster than others, <laughs> but you know, what can we do? There, there's a lot that we can control. And so the things that we can control, let's bring those into our lives. And then the other, the rest of it, you kind of have to let go because you know, things happen and, and you can't control those. So I think Leslie and I both have a, a pretty profound interest in, in healthy aging. Well, I like that because you're, you're kind of like a double-edged sword. You have, the, you have the aging for yourself and for us as women, but then you also have the insight, you know, from the therapeutic insight, the, the fitness insight, and then how to handle yourself as a caregiver and how to handle parents. I mean, that's kind of a nice, complete package. I think that's why I liked your site so much. Oh, thank, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, Leslie and Amanda, thank you so much for being our guest today. It's mindfulaging.com. Check out their books on Amazon. There's two of them. You won't be disappointed. We'll catch you again next week. Thanks for being with us today on Motherhood Talk Radio, starring Sandra Beck. Join us again. We've got something you won't want to miss. Motherhood Talk Radio is a production of Beck Multimedia.